this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure, maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. You know, they say you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. I have no idea if that's true or not, but my next guest, Philip Williams, probably has a thing to say or two to say about that. He built an environmental consulting company along with six other partners, went to sell it, got right to the closing day when it all fell apart. And what I want you to listen for is just how confident Philip was that the deal was going to go through, how essentially every I was dotted, T was crossed when it all went horribly wrong. He ended up selling the business for much less in a, an exit that was more recently consummated. But again, I think the cautionary tale and what I want you to listen for is just how confident he was that the deal was going to go through and that there are, in many cases, factors totally out of his control or your control that could make the deal go sideways. So keep running your company just like you're not going to sell it right up until the day the check clears your bank account. Here to tell you his story and a cautionary tale at that is Philip Williams. Philip Williams, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, it is very good to be here, John. I read your book like years and years ago, and so I'm really excited to be able to talk to you today. Oh, cool. That didn't even put you off actually having this conversation. That's good news. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, it was so funny because you wrote the book like right after I finished doing many of the things in the book. And I was like, hey, this guy and I probably would have a good cup of coffee or something together. Awesome. Okay. Well, tell me about the company, Hydrogeophysics. Cool handle. What, what did you guys do? We were an environmental geophysical consulting company. Okay. You lost me. Yeah. Um, uh, Think of licking and sniffing rocks. Our job was to, we, we focused mostly on protecting water resources. So if you can imagine all the things that go on in the world that might harm a water resource, we helped companies make sure and prove that they weren't doing things to damage your water table and things like that. So I'm a, a drilling company and I'm drilling for something and there's a stream that runs through. You basically go in and say, here's what you need to do to ensure you don't you don't in any way affect that stream, the water quality, et cetera. Right. And we would monitor like if you accidentally had a release, we could monitor that release and make sure that it wasn't um, hitting the water table or help you you know, show the EPA, hey, look, um, what we did didn't hurt anybody or anything. And so that was our job was kind of the the independent second check in many cases that, that we would provide a report that would go to environmental protection agencies and those kind of folks. 
cool. Was it like a consulting company where you had like projects, you'd, you'd kind of spec a project out, you'd send a proposal, they'd say yes, you'd send an invoice at the end kind of thing? Or how did you get, how did you bill for what you did? Yeah, it was very much like that. And because it was geophysics, it was highly seasonal, very hard to do electrical geophysics when there's two feet of snow on the ground. Mm. Uh, the other thing was companies didn't like that they had to use us. So that made us uh, we got treated like a commodity. So if you can imagine being a afterthought commodity with a high seasonal component, that was, hmm. our, that was our starting point. <laughs> okay. So did you make any changes to, to, to get out of the seasonality and to, to become less of a commodity? Yes. That was, uh, that was the very early days because I just found that to be super frustrating, very annoying and not fun when it came to managing the checkbook. So we focused heavily on how could we get a recurring revenue source built? How could we make sure that our clients repeated back to us many times so that we could guarantee the revenue? How could we elevate our brand so that we could get out of that that commodity neighborhood and start being thought of as, you know, a specialized unique, got to have it kind of a service. What did you do to create recurring revenue? One of our early projects was monitoring um, a, a contaminated site for the government on a monthly basis. And then we had other customers who were coming in and they had problems where they were having to demonstrate that, that they hadn't harmed the environment on a continuing basis. And this is sort of the classic, your customers can't tell you what they can buy, but they can tell you where their pain is. And I started kind of putting these pictures on the wall. I remember vividly one day with the, with the founder, we, we got on a whiteboard and we were just talking about how can we solve that exact question, that, 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 that uh, seasonality problem. And it occurs to me that, Hey, look, our, our clients don't, they're not saying it explicitly, but what they need is a continuous, low-cost monitoring service so that they can provide monthly reports to the EPA. And so we started down that track, and it took us about two years to actually get that service because we had to design the device, build the device, and then market the service. And it took us about two years really to get completely out of that mess and start moving forward. But uh, that was that was what we did. We patented some IP along the way so that we could elevate our brand and combined those two things together. And we started getting thought of as, you know, more of a specialized um, service, if you will, that, that was better than our competitors. Awesome. Awesome examples. We, we talk about eight drivers of company value at Valuebuilder, and two of them are obviously recurring revenue, which you nailed as well. We call it monopoly control, but it's it's about investing and creating a brand and creating a point of differentiation. So you've got a bit of pricing authority. You're not just a commodity. Uh, so it's a great job. Um, where did it go from there? Like, How big did you get this company before you decided to sell it? We were doing almost three and a half million in sales. Um, when we started getting nuance indicators from from suitors that they might like to um, acquire us, How, what does a nuanced indicator sound like? What What do you mean by that? 
So you're out to dinner with the vice president of uh, one of the large companies that you are a subcontractor for, and they ask you little questions like, hey, what's the future of the business hold? You know, you know, where, where are you guys going with this thing? Um, you know, and, and some of them are a little more blunt. Is there an exit plan? You know, they because a lot of those high level VP guys, they're they're incentivized to bring good deals to the table. And they're also looking for ways to grow their businesses. And the other side of the coin is when you get into being as good as we were at doing what we did, they don't want to be the person on the outside looking in when somebody else acquires you. So they start kind of hinting around. They want to know where you're going to go and what you're doing and and where the business is going to grow. And so you get kind of some of those indicators. Um, so you're three and a half million in sales. What proportion of it was recurring? As at that time, we were we were up to about 25, 30% of it being recurring with north of 80% of our revenue coming from multiple repeat clients. Fantastic. And so kind of what sort of margin are you working on? Like ballpark? Is it sort of like a 10, 20% classic consulting north of 20% margin? Yeah. So our 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 pre-tax was about 12. 12%. Okay. Fantastic. So you're having these kind of conversations with these VPs of these large companies. Um, where does it go from there? At, at what point did you decide, okay, it's a good time to take these conversations a little more seriously? Oh, Is there a trigger? I, I vividly remember the day that we, we... Fortunately, we'd already gone through the valuation process because we had seven shareholders in the company. Um, and so our valuation was worked out. We knew what it was worth. We had a formula and everything. So, so we were pretty solid on that. But uh, the day that it became crystal clear as I got a memorandum of understanding from a company that wanted to team with us and they'd had a conversation and said, hey, do you, you, know, you want to team together on some projects? Very large company who actually became the first company that we became engaged with as far as wanting to purchase us. And buried in this three-page MOU is this sentence that we're going to have confidential conversations, which may include such topics as mergers and acquisitions. And that was the very first time that this company had ever said that to us. But the fact that they put it in black and white in writing, I instantly knew. This is actually where this is going. How did you know it wasn't just some boilerplate letter that they use for every kind of NDA they, they write? I had seen many teaming and subcontract NDAs over the four and a half years of running the company. This was the very first one I'd ever seen that specifically had the topic of M&A in it. Interesting. The seven shareholders that you had, you said you had a pre-existing valuation. How did you guys value the company? What was the formula? We used, because we were in engineering consulting, we went with a company called Zweig White. And they, I don't know if you've ever heard of them. You, you no, may have. But, no, but I was curious as to what the formula was. Like, was it multiple of EBITDA or multiple it, of revenue? Like, it, it wasn't that quite that simple. It had to do with, it, it took in a number of factors. Your hard assets. So as a consulting company, we might have some equipment and machinery. Uh, it took into effect your debt, your revenue, free cash flow, uh, all those sorts of things. And then it also looked at we had information about sales to say, if you were going to sell through an ESOP, then your valuation would be on the low side. Were you a strategic acquisition, then your valuation might be on the high side of the envelope. And they gave various different formulas and factors. And so we had, we had ballparked an envelope uh, 
that we were comfortable with and that was how we did it we we went through their process and and uh, knew our valuation so you're three and a half million in revenue, twelve percent margin. What did you think the company was worth? Ballpark? We were looking at three and a quarter to three and a half. And and well, so, basically for us, it worked out to be about one time sales. Is really how it worked out. But you went through this complex mathematical formula to figure it out. Got it. And are you able to talk about who who uh, the MOU was from? Like the name of the company? Slumberger. Slumberjay. I, I love the name. I've heard of them, but I... I anyway. 23 and a half billion publicly traded company. <laughs> and and so you've got this this MOU, which has this veiled reference to M&A. Where does it go from there? Uh, I got a ear to ear grin on my face, printed it out, folded it in half and walked down the hall to the founder's office uh, and closed his door handed him a folded up sheet of paper and said to him, your head is being hunted. And he looked at me, he says, what do you mean? And I said, Slumberjay wants to buy us. And I think it was 10 minutes before he spoke a word. Because <laughs> here we were, we'd started out this little tiny little boutique geophysics company. And now we had offices in four states and a fifth office in another country. And here it is, like the biggest oil field services company in the world wants to buy us. And that was just a, a little bit, you, you kind of have a little bit of an ego trip and an excitement, exciting moment. And, and, and he and I had a conversation. It was, hey, how far do you want to take this conversation? He says, let's, let's see if we can't take it all the way. So I signed the MOU and I go back to my office. And I called up the the VP that sent me the MOU, and and I and I and I and I said to him, I said, "Hey, we're we're going to go ahead and sign this MOU," and I've read it, and I'm particularly interested in in one particular sentence in it. And he says to me, "I'll have you, our vice president, give you a call shortly." So I emailed them the MOU, and the VP calls me, and he says, "Yes, actually, that is the point of the MOU. We we want to buy you guys." <laughs> Where does it go from there? So I get on a plane, I fly to Denver and I meet the vice president and uh, we have a conversation with him and, and uh, you know, he says, okay, so you, you guys really want to go on this path? I says, yeah, we do. And he says, okay. And he says, I'll, I'll have somebody from our Houston office because that's where Slumberjay's headquarters is in, in, in the U.S. He says, I'll have somebody from the office call you and we'll get more into particular. So beyond the MOU, you have a point where you get into a conversation where they want you to exclude all other possible suitors. So we weren't, we weren't at that point yet. And I thought to myself, you know, the, the best possible situation is to actually have two suitors at the table. And so I fly back down to, to Tucson and bring in the shareholders. And I says, you know, we've been having this sort of other conversation with the, with this other company. I think we ought to see if we can bring two deals to the table at the same time, just to see if we can't maximize the value. And everybody agreed. So I picked up the phone and I called that vice president from that company, which was Tetra Tech. And I said, Hey, uh, I have in my hands and I've signed a document from another company and I am 99.9% .9 sure it's going to wind up in an offer. And you guys have tickled around the topic for, for a couple of months as well. 
If that is your intent, you need to move and you need to move quickly within weeks. And so within weeks, they sent us an offer. (laughs) And I flew up to Denver and met with that guy and we compared the two offers. So Slumberjay at this point had had given you an offer. What was their offer? They hadn't given us an get. They hadn't given us an offer yet. And so then what we did was we went back and forth uh, internally, and we said, well, you know, we need to get down the road and figure out who we're going to go with. So with Slumberjay, you get into a point where you actually are formally providing, you know, they give you like a 20 item list, everything from last three years financials, they want bank statements, they want tax, they want a list of IP, that sort of thing, because they're trying to start to value you. And uh, so we sent all that to them. And then they finally come back with an offer and their offer basically works out to one-time sales. And it was better than the second company that we'd brought to the table in that it didn't, it didn't require an earnout, And they had a secondary bucket. So in addition to paying one-time sales to the shareholders and theirs, by the way, was a stock purchase, not an asset purchase. So that told us, wow, they're, 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 there's not much they're afraid of. Uh, a stock purchase with no earnout and a secondary bucket of money that was almost one sixth of sales to be paid to other employees exclude, and the other employees could not be shareholders. So that also told us they were very interested in retaining the team, which was infinitely important to us because we had enjoyed very, very low turnover. We had a great culture. We wanted to take all these folks on the ride with us. And so with all of the factors that that I just labeled out, we said, you know what, that's who we want to be with. And the TetraTech offer was, how was it different? It, It had an earnout. It was lower value and uh and it would take us about three years to get it and we would have a little bit less control over the business in the first couple years did you push slumberger on the on on the on the valuation based on the the you know at least the threat of a better offer no no um I, we didn't have anything to bluff with mm. I, you know your fallback is a lesser offer well, I suppose that's not true. I suppose we could have just kept the business and kept rolling on. Um, but at this time, our founder is in his late 60s, closer to 70 than 60 by a, by a ways. And you've and, got six other shareholders. You're a shareholder along with the other six. Yes. What's, how do you, what's the agreement among the shareholders uh, as to sort of who has, um, does it have to be a unanimous vote to go ahead with an acquisition? Does the like, how, how did you guys structure that? Two thirds, half? You know what? That's a that's a good question. We didn't actually have a formal rule on that, although I think we would have gone with majority rules. But the interesting thing is that no one was no. I don't want to sell. There was nobody who was in that camp. Everybody was was open to the idea. And part of the reason for that is way back in the early days, we had discussed, you know, what's the future of the business? And, you know, privately, we understood that we had shareholders with the founder in his late 60s and shareholders in their early 30s. So we had a very 
large gap in years uh, amongst the business owners. And when you have that, that that's a difficult situation. So, um, but we understood that at some point there was one founder, the, the, the founder of the business, he, he owned over 70% of the business. And so it was kind of like, well, 51% is control. <laughs> so he really had the, the, the majority say and, and the influence over whether right. to accept the offer or not. Right. But there was nobody who was, who was voting against uh, being sold. Got it. So then you've got the clearly the lead offer here from Slumberjay. Did you then sign the non-compete and go into the diligence period with them? We did. We did. Where did it go from there? Uh, so multiple meetings happen during the formal due diligence phase. Uh, first one was with them coming to our, uh, well, then we provide another layer of information. And then after that, they bring uh the vice president of the business unit that's acquiring us along with a fellow who is wearing two hats he's a chief technology officer and he's also a chief marketing officer and he's he's a frenchman so he's straight out of paris uh, but he's he's in that business unit that's that's acquiring us they they come and they do an on-site visit kind of meet the team because now it's starting to get into, okay, we're, we're getting serious. And are these personalities, is this a culture that's going to work well with us? That was something that we were really concerned about too, is, hey, look, you know, if we're just little old us. And if, if we get bought out by these guys, are they going to crush our culture? What's that going to be like? You know, so they come down, they visit us, all goes well. And we have the number and the number is everybody's happy and content with, we, we were quite pleased with the number actually, because it, it indicated being on the high side that they viewed us as a strategic acquisition and not a tactical acquisition. And so we weren't just, you know, one more pencil in the box of pencils. And from there, then they, they went back and it was a few weeks and all this while I'm also um, working with an, an M and a, their M and a attorney who's stationed out of Houston and I'm uploading stuff to him all the time and everything. And are you working with any sort of advisor? Do you have like a lawyer or an M&A professional kind of representing you? On our side, we had our attorney and we had an accountant. It wasn't like a big foreign accountant, but he was, um, I'll call him a, it was a large professional accounting firm. It was not, you know, one accountant, in a, in a two office kind of situation. It was multi, you know, a team of accountants who had been through this kind of stuff before. And then I was fortunate in that I had some personal friends who had been in venture banking. I had another fellow who had worked on Wall Street and helped companies like Excelsior Henderson, if you remember that name, raise money. And, right. and so I had a group of personal advisors and then I had um, a mentor um, who had sold a business for $80 million. So I kind of had people that I could ping on and ask questions about and, and utilize that network of people to help me out. So let's just pull up for a second. So you're in the, so you've signed the letter of intent. Um, yes. you're in the middle of due diligence and you're uploading this, this more detailed sort of, uh, types of information that they're looking for. What's your, you know, as you're walking around the office and you know at home at dinner, et cetera, what is your in your mind the probability that this deal is going to successfully close? 
I was super you, confident. <laughs> super confident. Like nine yeah. out of 10. Like this yeah. is basically a slam dunk. I, I, you know, it, because I had run the business very tightly for, you know, four, four plus years. Uh, our accounting was always audited by an external accounting firm. Uh, our, our profit was good. We didn't have any what I'll call ownership accounting going on where somebody's running their groceries through the company credit card. We were tight. We were clean. We were profitable. We'd grown 50% every year for five straight years, and we'd done it with internal cash flow. You know, so we were we were good. I felt very we had we had patented IP. We had good repeat business. We were a good business, and so I was just I was very I was very confident that it was going to go through. Then what happened? Uh, so. Long story short, we do a technology meeting where all of our team, we fly up to uh, San Francisco. We bring in some of our project managers. They love it. Then that December, we do sort of a big financial wrap meeting. And this is the first point where I get a little bit nervous about, is this thing going to go well or not? Because this was like our first hiccup that we had. I have a client who shorts us a quarter million dollars. When it, you say shorts us, you mean stiffs you, like yeah, doesn't pay, doesn't yeah, pay you. Does, doesn't pay. Hey, it's going to be a long time before I can pay that sort of thing. And So it's it, it's not, do you write it off or you just extend it into 60, 90 days? Is it still on your- So on I, your, I, I'm in the- On your balance sheet as a debt? Got to be totally ethical about this, right? I mean, you're too. You're talking about a stock purchase. You don't want to be on the other side of the deal goes through, and then they find out that you had a receivable that didn't happen. So you got to tell the acquirer. So they're coming down. It's early December. They're coming down for a big financial meeting, and that meeting goes very well. Goes very well. But I start the meeting with the M and A attorney and their accountant, and I say, Hey, look, guys, we need to have a. a private conversation here for a couple of minutes. And I say to them, Hey, look, here's what's going on. Um, we have a, a customer who is not going to be able to pay and they owe us a quarter of a million. And they said, okay, all right. Uh, we'll take that under advisement. We go through the day, the rest of the day goes well. And then, uh, they say, look, we're going to get back to you on what's going to happen with, with how we're going to work the deal on because of that three quarter or that, that $250,000 problem. And, so within a couple of days, it happens very, very quickly. We restructure the deal and it, and it actually, it wasn't a bad deal. All they did was lower the price by a quarter million and then say to us, you guys keep that receivable. And if it ever pays, it's yours. Well, okay. That's not bad. I mean, it puts all the risk of that receivable back on us, which is where it will end even if the deal falls through, right? It's still our problem. So, and, but they would let us retain ownership of that receivable and then we could work it. And if it took years for it to come through, whatever, but it would still be our money. And so I take that back to the shareholders and everybody's okay with that. But the problem is that that conversation extends the, the due diligence period by another six weeks. And so now we roll into late January. And remember, Schlumberger at the end of the day is an oil company. And all of the while that this is going on, the price of oil is going down and down and down and down. <laughs> and so we get into February and still the deal isn't done. But by this time, escrow accounts are open. 
every shareholder has an escrow account and it, it, like we're a button away from having money deposited. All of the employees have been told this is going to happen. We're simply waiting on the day. Everybody knows. And we've even gone through and selected the employees that were going to get additional monies um, for themselves. And the way that was structured was that it would be money that would be given to them on their uh, anniversaries. So the idea was that Schlumberger wanted to keep them on board. And as long as the, the, they stayed, their money would be paid to them. Got it. So kind of everybody knew this is going to happen. Like, you know, before tax day, we're all going to be working for somebody else. <laughs> and um, I get one last phone call from the vice president of the unit that's buying us. And he says, yeah, this is all good. It's going up to, to Simon Ayat, who is the CFO for Schlumberger. And he's going to sign it on Monday morning. And this is a done deal. And uh, Monday morning comes and goes. And I think we're in early March at this point. Monday morning comes and goes and there's nothing coming into the escrow account. And then Tuesday comes and goes and there's nothing. So I finally on Wednesday, I reached out to the M&A attorney. Hey, uh, what's going on here? Oh, I don't know. Let me find out. So I get another phone call from the VP and he says, look, this is going to happen. Uh, I just got assurances internally. We're good to go. Following Monday comes and nothing. And so that put me in the difficult spot. We let ourselves be in this position for a little over a month. And uh, finally, I said to the shareholders, I said, look, guys, we can't keep doing this. They, they either need to write the check or we need to get on about running the business. And um, so everybody, you know, we, we came to an agreement. We said, OK, well, we're going to send them a letter that says either deposit the money or withdraw from the letter of intent. And we sent the letter and a couple days later, we got the response that they were withdrawing from the deal. Wow. How'd that feel? <laughs> that is, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult. It, but, at least you know where you stand because for four weeks when you don't know where you're going to stand, actually for anybody that ever goes through this, as soon as you have committed that you want to sell your business and you have somebody who said, I want to buy your business, you, you, you tend to fall into this mode of operation. And if I can give anybody any words of wisdom about this, always run your business as if the deal is going to fail. And that's super, super hard to do. I'm telling you right now, it's a lot easier for me to say it than it is for anybody to do it. But that's where you have to be. Always run your business like it's going, like the deal's not going to happen. So you get their letters saying it's not happening. Yep. Was there rationale? What, what did they say? Why, why do they pull out? They, they simply withdrew. And then I did find out through back channels that they were having issues with their customers paying. And um, they simply said, well, you know, we need to tighten up on, on our side and get ready for some difficult economic times. And so we're not going to lay out any money that, that uh, we can't get back. 
Hindsight being 2020, when, like if you had it to do over again, what were the signs that the deal was starting to collapse? As you look back now, was there an email or a conversation you thought, oh, you know what? I should have known better. You know, there was nothing, nothing specific other than the lag. You know, it took, it took about six weeks to, to, to firm up the price after we had that receivable problem. If we hadn't had that receivable problem, we might've gotten the deal done. But we had a client who, who didn't pay. And so that slowed us down. And, you know, can I fix my client's business? Uh, I don't know. If the receivable had been a smaller problem, say if it wasn't Say it, what you know, if it was a hundred thousand dollars versus two hundred and fifty thousand, would that have changed their speed of reevaluating the deal? I don't know. Uh, there's you know, there's there's things that go on inside your acquirer that you 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 don't have any control over and you don't have any knowledge about. They have their own processes, uh, you know, so you, it's super easy to second guess that. Um, so I, I, I don't I don't know. There, there weren't there weren't a lot of clues coming out of them that things were going to go bad until after they had committed to a new valuation, and that was only a six week period. How did your founder react when he heard the news they were pulling out? Well, we'd had a few weeks to start getting used to the idea that it might not work out, and so when you're allowed to mourn something a little bit ahead of time, it's a little bit easier. But it it was a big disappointment. It was it it was hard. It was hard, and um, you know it's hard when you find it. What well, at the same point in time now we have a we have a quarter million dollars hanging out in the breeze that we need to try to figure out how to collect, and we don't we're not selling the business. So all of that was really tough. It's 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 not easy. I I, I don't want anybody to think that. It's hard. It's hard, how but did, you have a business to run. How did you guys? I mean, we're getting tight on cash because a quarter million dollars—it's a lot of uncollectible money on a three and a half million dollar business. That's a big nut. Yeah, thankfully it was still a little bit less than our credit line, <laughs> uh, but it, it's a big nut, and that means that every job has to be profitable on an ongoing basis, and you cannot afford. Uh, the seasonality at all. So where, so where does it go from from here? Because then ultimately you did have an exit, but tell me more about that. So then it starts getting back into okay, who can we go back to? Is there is there anybody left? And so I picked up the phone for you know the, the number two company, and I said, hey, if if you guys are interested, um, our our de- our other deal has fallen through. So if you're still interested, you know, and their response was well. Uh, you know, we're we're into the year. The money's already been earmarked, and so it will be September, October, and this is March. It'll be September, October before we can start talking about, you know, new monies for the year after. So for them, you know, that puts it eighteen months out. And so, th- as far as the number two company goes, it wasn't an option. And so then we start looking at other options, and there was a, a third company. And and did you approach them? Like, how did that go? Uh, we we did approach them, and they actually ultimately acquired the business. How long after the slumber Jay? Um, that was about deal a deal collapse. 
yeah, that that took about a year. And how did the 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 deal that actually consummated? I know we can't talk about specifics about who that acquirer was, but how did it compare with the original deal on the table from Slumberjay? It wasn't as good. It wasn't as good. All all along, the Slumberjay deal was the best deal. Yeah. I mean, when you say not as good, are we talking like five percent less? Are we? Is it fifty yeah, percent? It, it, it was worse. <laughs> I'll just say that I can't. I can't get into the category, into the specifics, but but it was worse. Was there a temptation just to continue to run the business without being acquired? Some, yes, yes. But we, I think, part of what wore on us is we were tired. We were tired. Uh, geophysics for lack of a better word, is very much a lifestyle business. It is physically challenging. And I, I do mean that because the days are long, you're outside, uh, a lot of hours, a lot of projects. Um, and I, I think part of it was the team was ex- a little bit exhausted and we were left feeling low, you know, when, when the other deal fell through. High stakes poker for sure. Uh, Philip, is there a... Is there a place that people can reach out to you if they want to uh, connect with you? Do, you? do you accept sort of LinkedIn requests or anything like that? What's what's the best way for people yeah. to get in touch? Absolutely. On LinkedIn, I'm Philip hyphen Williams and Philip is one L. Uh, uh, you can reach out to me there. I openly accept invitations uh, very often. And uh, my website, askphilipwilliams.com. Again, Philip with one L. AskPhilipWilliams.com. We'll put all that in the show notes. Philip, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, John. Uh, Really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit BuiltToSell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.